Hi. Good Hi. evening. How are you? You hear me? Yes, I can hear you beautifully. Okay, great. Uh, I want to welcome to Generally Jewish History Podcast, Professor Ronnie Pirellis. He is the uh, professor of Sephardic Studies at Bernard Rebel Graduate School, University. He's also the author of several books. And tonight, we're going to discuss his book, Narratives from the Sephardic Atlantic, Blood and Faith, published by the Indiana University Press. Good evening. That's my pleasure. Thank you. Okay, so your book um, focuses, you choose to focus on three very interesting and perhaps very different characters from the Sephardic Atlantic, as you put it. Uh, so first of all, why did you choose to, uh, you know, what got you into this topic to begin with? And also, why did you choose to uh, focus specifically on these three? And we'll talk about the three more in detail in a minute. Yeah, thank you. That's, I mean, it's a great, great opening question. Uh, and matter to some extent, uh, but it's also a slippery question. You know, why do we, why do we dive into things and dedicate our, our, a big chunk of our life to them. Um, there's, there's always, you know, different uh, influences and inspirations and, and moments um, that open up and kind of take us there. But I, um, I think from a, from an early stage, I was, I was really interested in, in seeing, trying to get to a place of interiority with my material. Um, so not just where did a person go, where did they sleep, who did they do business with, and, and, and whatnot, which is all really interesting, especially as you can build that out with many cases and, and kind of create a, a historical record. Um, but like to try to get into like what's going on inside, um, how are they understanding themselves? Now, th that obviously is, is very fraught. We can't really know what's inside someone based on what they write. Um, but that desire is there. And I, I think I started from that vantage point combined with a, a real hunger uh, for adventure, intellectual adventure, I guess, at least, or vicarious adventure, um, especially around the period of time that these authors lived, the, the, you know, the time of discovery and colonialization and conquest of the Americas, the kind of explosion in uh, in travel and 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 explorations uh, throughout the world is kind of you know one of the early global ages of of the world, and uh, one of the things that I I knew from my from my graduate study and reading is that it's it was clear that people of Jewish origin were traveling to the Americas. Um, you know, I can, I can, I can, I, I can't give a, a public talk about this material and not have at least one pe person um, asking or really telling me about the Jewish origins of Columbus, for instance. Um, and you know, so that sort of those sort of stereotypes. So those are like some of the more kind of mythic or stereotypical sort of, um, of um, you know, Jewish types of people traveling through the Americas. But I think more importantly, um, we know that many, many conversos, starting with Columbus's crew, but but certainly throughout uh, the first, first two, three centuries of European expansion and colonialization of the Americas, um, that conversos came to the Americas. 
Um, so I wanted to find their stories. Where do they talk about those journeys? What was, was there anything different for a, a converso who traveled and encountered new peoples and new cultures and, and the, you know, the astounding um, nature of, of the Americas, you know, the, the Amazon River, the huge the mountains of the Andes, um, you know, the, the, the different fauna and, 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 and flora. Um, was that experience different for someone with a, a, with, with a Jewish element in their identity? Um, what was that like for someone who's actually deeply committed to Judaism despite living like a Catholic? Um, did that change anything for them? I and mean, we know that the Americas, um, early on, starting with Columbus's diaries, you see the idea come up that the Americas are like a, an Edenic place, right? They're a place somehow different than the old world, um, that they're linked in all sorts of thematic and, and, and um, really semi-mystical ways with Garden of Eden, with the place where the lost tribes must be, and all these kind of all the all the the areas of the biblical his biblical past that are you know kind of wrapped up with places that we don't really know where they are. Right? We don't know where the Sambation is, uh, for instance, that river that that you know river of rocks that that seals off the uh, the the lost tribes. Um, but maybe it's in this amazing place that we never heard about the Americas. So I was always, I was from an early stage in my in my graduate career, I was interested in in trying to find stories like this. Um, my, my degree, my 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 PhD is in Spanish literature. So I, I studied, um, you know, the colonial, you know, the writing of the early conquistadores and the explorers and the uh, um, and all the theorists. Um, and that stuff I, I found so fascinating and I wanted to find, you know, well, if we know that Jews were going or people of Jewish origin were going, um, where do they write about it? Can we find any evidence of that? And uh, one summer working in the rare book room at JTS, um, I had a very good job. It, it paid almost nothing, but they let me do whatever I wanted. And they, I was ostensibly cataloging their Spanish and Portuguese rare books, and but it allowed me to just wander in these in this treasure house, and among these books, mo most of them related to uh, the Spanish and Portuguese community in Amsterdam. Um, um, most of the among these books, you know, among the Chumashim and the Sidurim and 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 books that you would imagine being belonging to to you know Jewish libraries. Um, were a lot of books about travel and books about the Americas and books about the Far East. Um, and that started getting me thinking, well, is there something? Is there something here? Um, and, then, and then I kept on digging and kept on thinking about, you know, finding pieces here and there um, that seemed to point on uh, the direction of my book. Um, and so that's, that's a little bit about how I got into um, this material and, um, you know, kind of a the desire to, to try to um, also not just, you know, like, like I said, we, you know, there were historians before me 
who were able to tally how many conversos were arrested by the Inquisition in Cartagena, for instance, right? right. Um, and what did they say during their testimonials and, and, and find their testimonies and, and all that. But I wanted to go one step further, at least from a psychological perspective, to the extent that we can, and from a literary perspective, because ultimately um, writing about your experience is is not a pure window into your soul. It's it's a literary artistic grappling with reality. And, and so um, that was something that I wanted to, uh, to involve myself in. Yeah. Thank you for that. Um, it's not just the story uh, about specifically about the Sephardic Atlantic or the Moranos, which is of course majority. It's a story about you, the human condition. Obviously, um, what yeah. particularly touched me is um, a lot about family. Uh, we talk about you know uh, a fratricide or uh, you know the relationship, a lack of a father figure, um, specifically. Yeah. In the, your first protagonist, who is uh, Louis de Carvajal, the younger, uh, his spiritual autobiography, it really brings a bring you know really like kind of fleshes out psychological conditions. I think anybody can kind of identify with, and we're going to get a little bit more into that. Um, right. So I mean, it's almost like I, I hope you don't mind me asking you, did you feel, uh, uh, were you completely dispassionate or did you feel any emotional kind of stirring reading these actual uh, primary sources? Uh, I'm, I'm far from dispassionate in almost anything I do. I'm, a very, I'm, I'm pretty hot-blooded and I, I don't think I could have sat with this material and produced anything of value if I didn't care about it um, deeply and kind of... Um, Felt like I was living with with the material. At the same time, there's always, you know, then that's um, you can identify a little too much, and that's always something that, um, thankfully, my friends who were tough readers sometimes pointed out here and there, and and that was helpful to me. Um, and but these are human stories, and they have to be read as human stories. They're not just documents of. Of again, of like, oh, this person went here, he went there, he thought this, he talked about that, he ate this. Right. Um, these are ultimately now depend. You know, each text is a little different, right? How they work, um, and and again, I think my literary training helped me navigate some of that because you you know er, you know early on you learn that a text is a text; it's not life right and so it's a the way someone's presenting something and that that's a helpful kind of tool i try to you know get my students to appreciate that as well you know that you know this is true in so many in so many genres right i mean uh shooting right uh, rabbinic responses you know just because a rabbi is is giving is is explaining a certain case about you know, a woman here, she got married, and then this happened with her kid. Now, we know that that's the way the rabbi is presenting the case. Often those cases are, are composite cases that the rabbi is putting together for all sorts of reasons. And and yet, that doesn't take away from, you know, the logic and I think the emotional logic of of, of or psychological kind of logic of that narrative. So, you know, that's one of the things that I... I I, I enjoy shuttling between kind of, um, you know, um, especially because 
in all three texts, but you know, in some more than other, in some aspects more than other, they they are um, you know kind of spinning a narrative that that is um, it's not a straightforward realistic narrative. You know, it's um, there's there's aspects of, of the fantastic in them, and and so I think that's important. You know, to know how to to um, engage that and um, yeah, and then kind of notice notice the fissures uh, between what you can know and what's on the in the text, right? Um, but yeah, the passionate piece. It's um, you know these are very human stories, and I wanted to give them their 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 rightful place. Um, you mentioned family. One of the things that I I came to see, um, you know, these these texts have their you know my treatment of these texts have their roots in my dissertation. But I I left the dissertation for a while, um, and went back to it. And when I went back to it with the help of a colleague who I I thank in my in the intro, uh, Professor Silvia Rome uh, at, at Brandeis. Um, you know, and just in having a casual conversation about about the man about the dissertation, she he saw. She said, "Wait, there's there's all sorts of social family dynamics, which is something which I never thought about before in a in in an intense way. I was much more interested in um, each protagonist and their religious quest as a much more of an individualized um, 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 program or or emphasis." And it was only one stepping back. And I think, honestly, and I think I also say this in the intro, actually having, uh, I think my third child was on the way um, at the time, you know, understanding personally the, what does it mean existentially to be a parent, to be a child, to, um, to, to think about things in those, in those terms, in terms of blood um, and blood family that helped me think about um, these characters and their world um, from the point of view of family relationships. And, and so that was like a, that was a, that was thing I couldn't see when I was younger. I mean, that's the thing I only was able to do when I, when I left the, the material and came back to it later. Um, yeah. So, yeah. yeah, like, I mean, I, you know, the, the image also of like the scholar who's, who's dispassionate and disconnected. I, that, I mean, in, even that as an ideal is 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 hard to um, actually do, and and I think we understand that you need to have some existential skin in the game um, to be able to do the work and to do it well and to kind of see the material for what it is. Um, yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, I think you're 100 percent correct. It's I think you end up walking this fine line, but obviously you can't be completely you know consumed with it and. Yeah, I, that, yeah, yeah. You do need to feel and put yourself kind of in the story in order to convey it properly. So um, definitely, that's uh, it's a talent, it's a skill. Um, with with uh, yeah, Louis C. Carvajal. I mean, it is you know when I read uh, the Carvajal's um, diary, um, his spiritual autobiography, uh, it kind of uh, reminded me of some other sort of martyr Jewish Sephardic Jewish martyr narratives um, La Habdil like the Costa which you don't mention in the book for instance right uh, other, you know it's a completely different story right it's sort of this like I kind of psychoanalyze maybe I'm doing that too much or maybe I shouldn't be 
um, there's a certain kind of complex, a martyr. Um, uh, uh, you know, on the on the one hand, it's emotion. On the one hand, um, you can't help but admire these people. Uh, on the other, um, it's not that it, it it's you you look at them like these are people who are constructing their own narrative, and um, they're it's almost and again, Lahavdil, if if you will, uh, Rabbi Yosef Karo, the author of the Shulchan Aruch, the famous Rabbi Yosef Karo, completely different circumstances. But when Shlomo Molcho, there's another Sephardic uh is burned at stake, and he writes that he wants to There's something here. Maybe I'm, I'm having a hard time putting my finger on it. Do you get what I'm saying? Yeah, I mean, martyrdom is 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 intense. Right. Um, it, it's powerful. It has deep roots, certainly in the three monotheistic religions. Um and, you know, there's been a lot, lot written on it. Um, you know, it's interesting you say, you know, Da Costa is interesting because he's kind of a martyr for his beliefs at the hands, right, of the, of, he calls the little inquisition right. of the Jews of Amsterdam. Um, and, um, and we, yeah, I mean, obviously, you know, martyrdom, the, the, the victims of the inquisition, did provide a lot of inspiration for the Sephardic diaspora, and then later got gets picked up by by Maskilic and, and Yiddish Yiddish literary um, currents, um, you know, as kind of a, a great example of Jewish heroism and Jewish sacrifice, you know, akin to the Crusades, even though it was very different than the Crusades. Obviously, um, it, it's it's interesting how it captures our imagination. And it makes sense that it does. I mean, it's in the liturgy, certainly in Ashkenaz liturgy, right? I mean, um, it, you see less of it in Sephardic liturgy, interestingly. Um, you know, uh, the uh, the Asara Haruge Malchut and things like that is, is, yeah, is uh, sure. right? It's, it's very much deeply rooted in Ashkenaz tradition um, in a way that you don't see it in, in Sephardic. But, um, and... You know, so with someone like Carvajal, what's really interesting is so much of his religiosity is him trying to Judaize the Catholic right. knowledge that he has access to, right? Um, you know, try to. So Miriam Bodian um, wrote a fantastic book on on um, on martyrs in the Inquisition, crypto Jewish martyrs in the Inquisition. Um, it's called Dying the Law of Moses. Highly recommend the book uh, by Indiana University Press. And um, she has a chapter on Carvajal and on um, another very well-known case, Maldonado da Silva from Chile, um, who was a fascinating, fascinating figure. In all these cases, I mean, they're, they're martyred, they're courting martyrdom at some point, not, not, not throughout their lives, but certainly by, by a certain point, they turn a corner and, and, they are looking forward to it almost, uh, right. or at least that's the way they present it. And, and look, I mean, certainly Catholicism is shot through, right? I mean, exactly. the reverence of the, of the early Christian saints who were martyred. Um, and, and, and then during the counter-reformation era, which is when I'm dealing with, you know, the martyrs who, you know, died at the hands of Protestants or at, or on mission to the Muslims in North Africa and things like that. Those are, uh, you know, St. Teresa of Avila, Santa Teresa de Jesus, um, 
you know, she in her in her autobiography, which um, I is one of the autobiographies I think about when I read Carvajal. Um, you know, she writes about how her and her brother, when they were little, um, would play martyrs. They would play as though they were going to go to the land of the Moors and and try to convert people and court martyrdom. So, you know, that was her imaginary play as, as a young child, according to her autobiography. Um, yeah, so you, you have a lot of different forms of that in the, in the Iberian world. Um, and, and so it makes sense that he would, he would be courting. And like you say, he's crafting his own, you know, he's, he, Judaism is very personal for him. It's a it's a personal thing, and it's a relationship with a personal God who calls to him. And so, you know, when he has to give the ultimate sacrifice, so that's that's a direct response to that personal God, right? Um, it's it's a very direct thing. It's not it's not like a you know Maimonidean sort of uh, um, act of of obedience to the divine or something like that. But rather, it's it's a very visceral, um, you know, uh, expression of sacrifice. Uh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I, you brought this up before. You were making uh, sort of comparisons between, you know, we see this the martyrdom very much in the, in the early Catholic saints and all and, and all that. I mean, I would have hazard to say that just about every religion, certainly the three Abrahamic faiths, has a very strong emphasis on martyrdom. Um, and, um, we see this obviously still, still to this very day. Um, the Klaus Schitzinski, Professor Klaus Schitzinski, who we spoke to recently said, um, that his vision of martyrdom was very much informed. I'm talking about his meaning uh, by, oh. the book, by the Maccabees, by the, of, of the, the Maccabean martyrs, mm. on the seven sons. Uh-huh. And I really love that. Um, obviously, we, I don't think he explicitly talks about that. He obviously was exposed to ancient Jewish writings, extra biblical writings, writings that were not included in the uh, in the mainstream Jewish canon. Um, but they were included, which is ironic in and of itself, in the Catholic Bible. Right, right. Um, and um, and and he would, you know, he would uh, take. Um, uh, he would be inspired by these, by these, by these Jewish saints, early Jewish saints. And um, for instance, one thing he does mention, and I got this. Food, he says. Um, uh, remember the the saints who let themselves ripped apart and yes. not eat vile things and food, <laughs> which was you know. Favorite. So it's obviously, um, he's not explicitly saying that he's taking this. But it seems pretty pretty obvious, right? Right, hundred percent. He he loved all that Second Temple literature that's included in the Catholic Bible, all the apocrypha, uh, and um, you know it has a lot of the imagery he loves. You know the very kind of apocalyptic trends. You know these visions. Um, you know, and so those those texts speak to him. He uses them. He quotes them a lot. Um, and yeah, yeah, the the whole Maccabee thing was quite, you know, there was, um, um, I believe, Gomez Silveira one, uh, was a converso poet who wrote wrote a whole play 
about um, you know the you know you invoking the Maccabees as a model um, and poems, these elegiac poems about different um, martyrs of the Inquisition. Um, so it's it, interesting to think that that's an interesting um, line to, to explore the Maccabean element in the Iberian world at the time. You know, the Habsburgs who were running Spain and the empire, you know, um, you know, would off, you know, often cast themselves in messianic terms that, that I think a Jewish audience would recognize um, kind of the, the blending of temporal and religious um, leadership um, and, and a desire to kind of um, speed the coming of, of, you know, the second coming to have, to have a return to Zion, to Zion, but a Catholic return to Zion, obviously. And it'd be interesting to see, are they invoking, you know, the Maccabees um, in any direct way? That'd be very cool. Um, yeah, there's, it's, it's, you know, you see an idea and you're like, wait, where's that coming from? Right. And it's like fun to like, try to right. try to piece it together because there's not one direction. Um, things are in dialogue and it's weird. Like there'll be, there'll be these Jewish sources that someone like Carvajal will know really well. And, and very learned people throughout the Jewish diaspora will, will not know because they don't read Latin and it's not translated. And it's not part of our Bible and, and these things. So, uh, yeah, it's it's one of the, the the quirks. Yeah. Then we move on to the second protagonist, a very interesting character by the name of uh, Manuel Cardozo, who uh, that we tend to I tend to think when I hear Cardozo, I think of uh, Justice Cardozo. Sure, sure. Of course, it is a, it's a Spanish name, and number of many Spaniard Catholics. He's an old Catholic. Right, uh, and he somehow uh, joint becomes a Gerasenic, and he's actually known as Ger, and it's interesting because it's unusual, right? Yeah, I'm guessing it's highly unusual. Um, it, it's it's unusual, um, in general for you know every for all the obvious reasons, everything from the fact that um, it's illegal. In, right, I mean, until until the modern right. era, um, in a Christian context, for someone to convert to Judaism was illegal, um, and the same would be true in an Islamic context for an Islam, a Muslim to convert to Judaism. Um, so there's the the legality and the and the and the terrible consequences for the the community that accepts the person for the person himself. Um, so that's obviously, and also the the obvious reason that it's like. Not, it's rarely a, a a move up on the social scale to join the Jewish people. Um, you know that has changed, possibly. You know in this in the later part of the 20th century, but um, you know you're you're choosing to be in a pretty uh, you know persecuted and 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 maligned group. So you don't have that very much. Um, but we have cases. And it's and it's interesting. Um, I, I it's in a footnote in the book, but I discovered Carlos de Maceo by reading an article by Yosef uh, Kaplan, Professor Kaplan from from Hebrew U, who um, has enriched my understanding of almost everything that I that I teach and study. 
Um, and and he has an article, and he points out that there were um, two Avraham Pellegrinos um, mm-hmm. in Amsterdam, um, and that the bibliographers like Mayor Kaiserling, who put together this this very early fantastic um, bibliography of of, of Spanish Portuguese Jews uh, writings, um, he conflates them, and and um, and he. But Kaplan points shows how they're two different people with very different backgrounds. But the thing that they shared was that they're both old Christians, right? Who somehow found their way to Amsterdam, and in Amsterdam, it's this weird. Amsterdam is this like cosmopolitan kind of uh, neutral zone of sorts. Um, y- these sorts of transferences can happen. These transformations can happen in a way that they can't certainly in a Catholic country or in a more orthodox um, um, Protestant context. Um, and, and so you have, we have cases of people who convert totally of their own will, um, generally of a, a, a Iberian um, old Christian background. Um, and it's, it's striking, right? I mean, my students often ask me about the the conversos who come back to Judaism. Do they do they go through a con- conversion process? And to the best of what I've found over the years, is that unless there's a reason to be concerned about about the lineage, the assumption is that these people have married among themselves, and it's a return. It's not a conversion. Um, and and I and it's it's striking thinking of today's anxieties around conversion and origins and things like that. But these people actually converted, right? These people actually go through a whole uh, process that's different than, you know, in Cardoso's case, Car- uh, you know, he meets this family in in Portugal that he's very close to. He travels with them. Upon arrival, he goes through. Um, a similar ceremony to what the older men would go through. He has to go through a conver- uh, circumcision, but they don't, that circumcision is not their conversion. That's their circumcision so that they can be part of, of God's people. Um, for Cardo- someone like Cardozo or others, um, Lorenzo Escudero, the other guy that um, uh, uh, Kaplan mentioned, um, you know, their the, the circumcision is part of their re, of their of their conversion. It's not a return, um, and but they're rare. They're rare cases, but we have them, which makes um, you know it's, it it is pretty striking. It's also a time when people are changing. I mean, Cardoso is a big changer, right? He goes from Catholic to Protestant to Jew, but um, this is a time, you know. Uh, especially in certain border areas where people are, are trying things out. They're trying new religious practices, new religious um, approaches. Um, and it's what makes this time period for me, at least, you know, really interesting uh, to see that movement. Amsterdam is the sort of place where um, you can try those things out and there, the consequences are low. You know, the amount of supervision of those issues uh, was low. Despite the fact that the people running this town, the burghers, uh, were deeply, you know, really devout Protestants, um, they were not interested in policing too much. So it allowed for that sort of thing. Um, yeah, it's it's rare.
It's interesting because uh, I he does he makes a stop at Danzig, which is uh, majority Polish city, but uh, part of Germany, I think, yeah. believe at the time. Um, and then he ends up in Hamburg, which has a lesser known Sephardi community, lesser known. It's the a child of the Amsterdam yeah. obviously, community, and I'm always fascinating with the interface with the kind of sort of the, the encounter between Jews and Ashkenaz yeah. and those who coming from coming from Spartic centers. So that's an interesting sort of an, a tangential thing that I'm interested in. And um, across, this is interesting, I've come across a case where the Amsterdam community would send despachos, people who were kind of uh, uh, you know, they, they were not of me. They were they were poverty stricken. They did not want to take care of them, so they would send them to kind of these communities where um, maybe have pioneering communities, perhaps. They would yeah. have easier time to to kind of make a living and not be a burden on the Amsterdam community. So um, there's, for instance, a list that someone posted recently uh, that included that actually of all places they were sent to Poland. Because had a Sephardi community, at least one that we know of, in a place called Zamosh, not far from Lublin. Yeah. Very funny story. Yeah. And, uh, and, and the, in the 1700s, I believe this is, we have a list of people, one of one of whom is referred to as Abraham Israel Ger, mm-hmm. uh, the Polonia, along with five. So, um, and, 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 and Basically, the reason I'm saying is Cardozo himself is not exactly his material. He doesn't get any material gain. Is is um his finances finances aren't improved. In fact, he's kind of kept on the sidelines, and he's given the position of a beetle in the synagogue. He's kept on the margins, as you put it. Um, he's not. He's obviously he's welcomed into the community, right? He's viewed with with um with compassion. But he's sort of a charity case. How common was this? I mean, we see this already. Um, I think also in, in medieval times from the Geniza documents. I think Obadia, I think it was the Norman proselyte or the other mm-hmm. one, several Obadias. Several Obadias, exactly. Yeah. 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 We had to, you had to resort to charity. So, I mean, these were people who were uprooted. They were kind of, you know, they, they were unmoored. And, and oftentimes um, that means um, whatever material connections you had um, sort of uh, evaporates and you have to start all over again. So you could be a, 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 a charity case to uh, a little bluntly. Yeah, no, that, I mean, it makes perfect sense. You know, again, you know, in a world where your financial status is deeply intertwined with your familial status and your marriage prospects and, and, and all that, if you, literally lose your family you you reject your family completely you're no longer in the place where you had connections and networks um you're at the behest of this other group um and and so you know we know cardozo we know he he comes from a a, a prominent family in, in the azores where he's from those islands in the north atlantic um his father was a merchant of good standing and he was being groomed to, to be involved in the business. Um, and 
he gives that all up, you know, and he's given many, many opportunities easily to go back and he chooses this other harder path. And so, yeah, you got you, the community appreciates that um, and takes him in. Um, also, it's one of the things that I, 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 I noticed, you know, he talks about it in his own autobiography, but I, I was, I was uh, able to spend time with his, his Inquisition documents. And there you see um, that he, you know, he, he does all sorts of things to protect and, and, and solidifies bond with the small group of conversos in Portugal who were who were arrested and penanced by the Inquisition, and and he does many things like organizing their escape, which gets foiled, um, and and kind of the the plan was that he would be taking the the children of this family. That's a very large, you know, that's a, like to entrust your children to the care of some stranger. Clearly. There was a real sense of of, uh, of of respect and trust in this guy, and he was willing to kind of sacrifice again, you know, of a different sacrifice, not sacrifice his life, but certainly sacrifice a lot to be part not only of of like the God of Israel, but the people of Israel, and that he works hard to do that. And they seem to reciprocate, right? They give him a job, they take him in, um, but then he. You know that time in Danzig is very short-lived because there's a there's a there's a riot against the small small enclave of, of Sephardic Jews because one of their servants, uh, actually a mulatto servant from the Caribbean, uh, dies in their in while you know while working for them, and this was around Kippur and they and and they they kind of according to Cardozo they form a they start thinking that it's like a blood libel situation and. Cardozo tells them to go away that he'll protect the property. He'll stay behind. And, you know, he suffers tremendously from that. He comes out of the prison um, uh, a cripple for the rest of his life. He's, he's, uh, he's a, he has a, has a limp in his, in his foot. Um, and um, so he sacrifices to get a piece of, of that social contract and to be cared for. Um, I don't know if you you remembered. I, I I quote the 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 verses he quotes at the end of his of his autobiography, um, are verses from from Ishayah, from Isaiah that Ashkenazim read on 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 fast days, normal fast days, and and and, and, and mincha time. Um, Sfaradim read it uh, Shabbat Shuvah, um, and and one of the main ideas in those verses is. Um, you know, God says to the Saris, to the to the eunuchs, you know, people who don't have children, don't have any, you know, any hope of having children. He says, "Don't worry, I will give you Yad Vashem, Beveti. I will give you a a, a name and a and a testament in my house. Like you, you know, if you keep the the commandments, if you keep the Torah, if you keep Shabbat, um, then then you're gonna have, you know, this. You're gonna have a place in my house, in my holy house." Um, and that's how he ends, right? Talking about the outsiders, the outcasts who will ultimately be in God's house. And, and it's a very powerful way to end for him because he's given it all up. He's given up the comforts of home, family, connections, money, health to be part of this, you know, this community. And so there's a, there's a way that he kind of um, 
writes himself into that community through these um, this narrative of, of sacrifice and bravery, you know, real bravery um, in the face of, of, of the Inquisition and, and um, sticking with these people. So, but it's, it's a hard life, right? It's a, you're, you're disconnected. And um, um, yeah, so yeah, I'm, I'm hoping, I'm working on a translation uh, with with Alexander uh, Vanderhaven from uh, from yeah from uh, Bergen, the University of Bergen in Norway, where he found he found some great documents in the archives in Amsterdam that Cardozo was married, which I didn't know. Wow. Yeah, I didn't find that anywhere, and and he found that that he was actually married, which I, I first off personally I was happy for him. <laughs> yeah, but again, you know, kind of, but like that is interesting in terms of this question, right? Like. How marginalized was he? Right? Who did he marry? Did he marry? Maybe he married a poor Jew. You know, maybe he married Ashkenazi. Uh, Ashkenazi, yeah. Um, maybe he married another convert, right? Who somehow found their way there. Um, yeah, yeah. And these, I and I think he worked for a while for the Ashkenazim, not even for the Sephardic. You know, not even for the Snoga. He he worked for the Ashkenazim as a, as a shamash. Uh, oh. I I, I I have to double check that, but I'm quite sure that part of his part of his time working. So that was that a demotion? Was that a I don't know. I don't know that the but you know certainly his certainly his yeah. autobiography is preserved among it's not published, but it, you know, the manuscript is copied and preserved among 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 the Sfaradim. Um that's ultimately his, you know, and linguistically and everything else, that's his home, but um, right. right. Well, definitely a fascinating figure. I'm looking forward to yeah. and uh, what, uh, hoping the archives will give forth some fruit. Yeah, me too. From the perspective. Um, then we get to the last uh, su subject of the book, and that is the very fascinating Antonio de Montezinos, who gives up uh, – Manasseh ben Israel draws on the famous Manasseh ben Israel of Amsterdam in his Deliverance of Israel, Mikveh Israel, where he talks of the Aseret Hashritim, the Ten Lost Tribes, or some of the Ten Lost Tribes were in the Americas that Montezinos personally vouched. Uh, he himself he gives testimony that he met some of them, and they said Shema Israel and so on and so forth. Very fascinating. Yeah. Thing, but there are differences, obviously, in the original testimony that has Antonio de Montezinos uh, related and what is actually published by Ben Israel about this in Hebreo Indian connection, as you call it, right? Yeah. yeah. Can you tell us a little bit more. Yeah. Well, well. I mean, first of all, we don't have the original transcript of oh. that of that testimony. Um, my my friend and colleague Jonathan Shorish who wrote a, an amazing 100-page kind of uh, uh, chapter monograph um, uh, on, on Montesinos um, that I gained a lot from in my own kind of approach to it. Um, he, he, tracked, he tried tracking every mention of it down, and the original transcript we don't have. So we don't know, you know, the, what we have is what is published by Menasha. Um, so that's, that's number one in terms of, like, you know the 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 distance that we have from forget about what he experienced but like even what he told people he experienced right so it's like these layers and layers um um i one of the things i talk about in the book is is 
how this is not uncommon for a lot of pre-modern texts that they circulate orally. There's no written record of them for a while. Um, you know, Columbus, for instance, the, the model I use is Columbus, uh, Margarita Zamora, a historian of, of Columbus. She has a book on, on his journals and much of the journals of Columbus. Sorry, you broke up there. Oh, Hello. yeah. Hello? Yeah, I'm right here. Hello? I'm here. Sorry. You broke up a little bit. You want to? Okay, sure. Where do you want me to go? Columbus? Take 10 seconds. Yeah, Columbus. Sure. So, so, so Samora, um, in her discussion of Columbus's, uh, it happening again? Okay. Sorry. I'll wait. Tell yeah, me. I think we're good now. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Wonderful. So, uh, I was just saying, you know, there's a pretty classic book on on, on Columbus's uh, diaries by Margarita Samora, uh, where she says, you know. We don't, we don't have the real deal for the most part. We don't have what the person wrote down, um, what Columbus wrote down. If for most of the journal, we have what, what Bartolomé de las Casas, who was a great um, figure in, in Latin American history and, and a friend of the Columbus family, he had access to Columbus's diaries. He made a copy of them for his own research and work on a, on a history of the Americas. And the copy of the diary we have is his copy. So we don't have most, most, we have some parts of the diary we have directly from Columbus's hand, but most of it we don't. It's through, through this second, very, very subjective, interested reader um, who was using it to create like a, a you know database really for his own writing. Um, so it's not, you know, this this is another example of that where we don't even, not even getting to what happened in the Andes, according to Montesinos, but what did he even tell the Jews in Amsterdam? What did they hear? We don't know. And that's, it's obviously deeply frustrating, but it's also, that's what we have. We have a text which exists in the form that Menashe ben Israel presents it. Um, and we have that primary text, so to speak, the text from Montezinos, again, as Menashe ben Israel presents it, we have that in dialogue with Menashe's treatise, right? The, the, the hope of Israel, the Esperanza de Israel or Mikveh Israel, um, is a long, to, to some extent, you know, is a long commentary and riff, uh, off of Montezinos' work or his narrative um and and so it's interesting to see you know that 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 whole structure is so interesting it's it's kind of rare today i think uh you would like publish the entire you know narrative and then have a whole but that was a very kind of i mean obviously he's early modern but that has roots in the medieval way of writing where you write you kind of copy a long passage and then analyze it and critique it um so he gives kind of you know but he he preserves the narrative in that form that's what we have you know so that's number one um and then the question is what do you do with this narrative which is at once so rooted in the in ordinary reality you know he gives the date 
He talks about how many miles he walked, how many days he went, who did he speak to, what were they eating, what did they wear, like all these like amazingly common, very basic details, which which um, ground the story in reality, and and you can even like figure out a little bit where he might have gone in the Andes and northern, um, you know, in, in those regions of, of modern day Colombia. Um, the I'll give you another example. The term he uses for um, for for the indigenous um, spiritual chief um, Mohan is a term that is specific to that region in Colombia. Mm-hmm. It's not a universal term in, in the Americas. It's not a universal. It's not a Spanish word. It's a word that was used in that. So there's a lot of reality, a lot of very specific color, um, and yet he's describing something which is very hard to wrap your head around like that he met a group that's seemed to speak you know say shmah together they had a whole story behind them so what do you do with that you know what do you do with that you can go in a lot of different directions um with that um for instance my friend jonathan uh shorish he worked really hard to kind of show all kind of to fill out the wide network of possible narratives that informed it and, and realities of, you know, all these interesting narratives of, of escapes, escape Indians, right? Indians who were forced into bondage and to work. Um, that's something that a lot of people don't know about. Um, we know, you know, we learn every day more and more about the, you know, the enormity and the atrocity of the African slave trade in the Americas. Um, but, the indigenous peoples, to a great extent, suffered various forms of forced labor that were as brutal. Um, and so we, and we also know about resistance and that many of these indigenous groups would escape, would go out to the mountains and create their own communities. And uh, what, 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 what Jonathan Storrs showed is how these communities um, had interesting narratives about salvation and redemption and, and, you know, th- overthrowing the tyranny of the Spanish that was tinged with all sorts of, of Judeo-Christian ideas. Not that I let, uh, that term is a very problematic term, but, you know, shared kind of things that you would find in the Bible, um, notions of, 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 you know, almost like a kind of a real world messianism um, that dovetails very nicely with, with Montesinos. So that's, you know, one approach is to kind of ground it in some of the possibilities um, of of people in in the time period in in where he was living, um, and I, I take I think a, a little bit more of a literary approach. Um, I I don't think he made it up. Right. There's no reason to make exactly. Right. You know, it's it's like he gained nothing. Right. From the story, uh, Menasha makes that argument. It's not mine. Uh, Ray says. He came, spent six months, refused to, refused to take a penny from anyone. He didn't try to, you know, like if he wanted to, he could have certainly used this story and maybe even brought back, quote unquote, a lost tribe member and kind of paraded him around and charged people for it. That sort of thing is what people did. Right? People would bring back Inuits, you know, and then have them displayed. And then, I mean, in a really awful case that, uh, uh, you know, in, in England, the, this Inuit dies, and then they stuff him. Mm-hmm. They keep him as a and to still like have people come and pay to watch, yeah. you know, to see him. Um, 
anyways, it's uh, oh, really? so he, he's not, he's not, uh, you know, he's not profiting in any way. Um, and yet, I mean, it's yeah, the tribe of Reuben is there. I mean, we have no evidence of that, right? And so clearly, something else is going on here. Uh, that that's how I see it. Like this is a, and that's why thinking about it as an autobiography, which is not a, it's not a full autobiography, but thinking about it autobiographically, you know, this is a narrative of a person who's going through a transformation, um, and and that's the way I I choose to go about it. Um, but you know, it's a it's a text that kind of touches and is in relationship with so many other other streams, and it's what makes that that text endlessly fascinating and, and perplexing. Yeah, and it's interesting yeah. to compare and contrast mm. this with other lost tribes narratives. Like yeah. Elda the day night. Oh yeah. Uh, David Rubini and, and others uh, and see, you know, the, some similarities and obviously some stark differences. Yeah. Um, but that's a whole nother. Oh yeah. Yeah. No, that's great stuff. Yeah, for sure. Um, I love reading and teaching those texts. I, I find them just mind-blowingly interesting, and um, and we still don't know about those people either. That's what makes us oh, so, yeah. so right. kind of mysterious. And who was he? What was his purpose? What did El Dad want to do? And that's a long, long time before <laughs> it doesn't start now. And then I, I I'm wondering where did the Mormons get the idea that the Indians were Israelites? That's so, so, yeah, well, so. It's it's it was a bigger. That's the other thing, and it's one of the things that I I try to do to contextualize the story. You know, I think a contemporary Jew, even one who knows quite a bit about history, hears this story and thinks this is complete bonkers. But if you were an educated European, uh, interested in 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 certain historical questions, the big question in the wake of encountering the indigenous peoples of the Americas was who are they right where do they come from are they because because the bible doesn't talk about this part of the world the bible doesn't talk about these continents or these people so what do we do with and 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 no sources do neither does the classical source you know aristotle and 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 ptolemy and all these guys so what do you do with all that and and it, it inspired a lot of a lot of serious scholarship in trying to figure out their origins. Um, and one of the reigning theories, it, it didn't always win, was that they must be descendants of the lost tribes for all sorts of reasons. And so um, that was something that was developed by, by some of the early Spanish um, uh, scholars who were writing histories of the Americas and studying indigenous cultures, uh, studying their languages and religion and things of that nature. Um, and then that got picked up by 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 English um, English colonists who were also trying to figure out like well why do these people do things which remind us of the Israelites of the Bible you know whether it was um, circumcision or certain words they would use that sounded like Hebrew um, you know things which really don't hold up but they were they were confusing and and if you're trying to figure out like well where do these people come from it makes sense to try to locate them in a story that you know um so the mormons i think are 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 like a late they're a little late to the game but they they they're taking it from those those streams um 
and it fits into their whole kind of you know incredibly American uh, uh, narrative, uh, religious narrative. Um, Fascinating. Yeah, yeah. So um, absolutely, very fascinating. Thank you so much. Is there anything uh, you're working on now, upcoming book that you want to give us a sneak preview about? Oh, thank you. Yeah. So, um, I'm I'm one well one of the things I'm doing is some spinoffs from this, which is I'm I'm working on a translation of the Cardozo manuscript because it only exists in, um, in in its original Portuguese and with a Dutch translation, which. I- excellent and 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 very useful but obviously i think an english translation would at least be useful to my students that i want to be able to teach it with uh teach it to so i'm working on that um and but a bigger project is um the car going back to it's connected to carvajal which is that around the time my book was coming out the full manuscripts Carvajal wrote. Carvajal was very, very um, uh, prolific. He wrote a lot of original material and he kept it all with him wherever he went in a small leather bound notebook. And when he was arrested, that was discovered and that was kept and used as evidence against him. And that existed in the archives of the Mexican Inquisition until 1932. Um, Luckily, when it was stolen and under mysterious circumstances. Um, Luckily, a a local Mexican historian, Alfonso Toro, made a transcript of Carvajal's autobiography. And in the Inquisition, there were still some of his letters that he wrote to his sisters while in prison. So we had some writings all these years, and we had the trial record, which was enormous and very important, very rich. But his, his full writings, we only knew about from his own kind of references to them or the inquisitors using it as evidence here and there. And then as my book comes out, news gets out that um, the book, the manuscript surfaced uh, Leonard Milberg, a, a New York uh, uh, lover of, of books specifically of Americana and, and, and Jewish literature um, was approached and he very with a lot of sagacity, sense that this was this stolen manuscript and brought in experts. And when they identified it as that stolen manuscript, he called the FBI and the Mexicans. Um, and, um, and it, and is now back in Mexico city. Um, and, but before that, Mr. Milberg had it um, digitized by Princeton university is on the modern and it's available for anyone to see the digitized version. Uh, if you go to Princeton and put in Luis de Carvajal, Princeton Library, Luis de Carvajal, you'll find it. It's a beautiful transcription, it's a beautiful, uh, um, you know, facsimile, uh, digital. Um, and I'm working together uh, with with two colleagues in South America, with Jesus Torrado um, and Ignacio Chueca, um, on a full version of this manuscript transcribed into Spanish, into right, um, with a full English translation, wow. notes, intro, introductory essays on different aspects, everything from um, the language, which is fascinating, um, from the kind of a history of the language, linguistic uh, perspective, um, to the, the religious uh, intellectual underpinnings of his writings, and really to kind of treat him as a new world religious thinker. That has something to say about 
what people were thinking in colonial Latin America, what people were thinking in the early modern period religiously, questions of, you know, Jewish creativity um, and audacity, which I think he had a lot of, um, and um, to kind of put him in in his, give him his proper place among, amongst, you know, other really interesting early modern and specifically um, colonial American um, thinkers and writers, um, Jewish and non-Jewish, right? So I think it, it, I think his, his, he has value in, in multiple camps and that's, he's consistently had people in different camps in interested, interested in his story. So I think that's going to be really exciting. Um, yeah. So that, that, that's going to be the big project. Um, and, and, I had a bunch of other things I, th I thought I wanted to do until these manuscripts got discovered again. <laughs> but but I'm ex really excited to kind of stick with that for a while and and then go back to the other, other, uh, other other issues. But um, yeah, and um, that's that's something that you, you'll be seeing bits of it come out. Um, I'm look. I'm certainly looking forward. Yeah, good, good, good. It's going to be a great project, and um, yeah, hopefully. Um, after it's published, we'll interview you about that. That'd be great. That'd be great. Um, yeah. Yeah. All right. Thank you so much for joining us. This was really fascinating and enlightening. Dr. Ronnie Perales, I really appreciate it. Stay safe. Joel, thank you very much. And continue this beautiful work um, connecting people. All right. Thank you. All the best, Colton. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.